Hello and welcome to Session 4 of the 2022 WSC Spotlight, How to Make the Most of Existing and Frugal Technologies. We have an amazing array of experts on the topic, and the session is moderated by Tracy Woolbrink from the Harvard Medical School. Tracy, take it away. Good morning. Good afternoon and good evening, everyone. We're very excited to have you joining us today. This next session is entitled How to Make the Most of Existing and Frugal Technologies. And we have a wonderful group of speakers here today that are going to be talking about a variety of different technologies that are used in the low resource environment. Um, I have the distinct privilege of introducing our first speaker, Dr. John Knight. Dr. Knight uh, completed his training at Sydney Children's Hospital and Guy's Hospital in London and went on to the Royal Alexandra Hospital for Children in Sydney, where he works as, worked as a pediatric nephrologist and created the Center for Kidney Research. He's done a lot of incredible things in his, his life and most recently is the managing director of Ellen Medical Devices, um, whose mission is to bring dialysis technology to the world and won the Affordable Dialysis Prize. And we're very excited to hear about his point-of-care peritoneal dialysis, a cost-effective greener alternative for renal replacement therapy. So welcome, Dr. Knight. Thanks for that introduction, Dr. Walrink, and thanks for the invitation to speak to you today at this session. As Tracy told you, I'm an academic pediatric renal physician. I work at the George Institute for Global Health in Sydney, Australia, as managing director of a medtech startup created by the George called Ellen Medical Devices. Today, I'll be describing a new low-cost approach to dialysis treatment for kidney failure, peritoneal dialysis, using PD fluid created at the point of care. So, as I said, I trained as a children's kidney doctor, and for decades, an important part of my job was getting up in the middle of the night to stick a percutaneous PD catheter into the belly of a newborn baby for a few days of dialysis, often after open heart surgery. But this image I found online is of a premature baby who has acute renal failure due to sepsis, fungal septicemia. Successfully dialyzed using small volumes of PD fluid until the kidneys recovered. The global peak body for kidney medicine, the International Society of Nephrology, estimates that there are 13.3 million cases of acute kidney injury annually, causing 1.7 million deaths. Most of those deaths are in low and middle income countries and are due to lack of access to dialysis. In acute kidney injury, a few days of treatment can be life-saving. In wealthy countries, AKI is usually treated with hemodialysis in the ICU. But peritoneal dialysis, the method we are proposing, is a safe, effective, and underused treatment in low-resource settings. This recent meta-analysis from Hunan province in China of over 55,000 cases in 47 observational studies confirmed that the widespread view that septic shock is the commonest cause of acute kidney injury in the intensive care unit. Some case series suggest that as many as 75% of patients who need dialysis have sepsis as a contributing factor to their kidney injury. So this talk, this talk is about an innovative, low-cost form of dialysis 
which we believe will have a role to play in treating acute kidney injury, especially in resource-constrained settings. Of course, I know you'll understand that most of our research work up until now has been focused on long-term dialysis for end-stage kidney failure. This young woman from Northern India has become in many ways the face of our company. At just 38 years old, she developed end-stage kidney failure due to high blood pressure and started hemodialysis through the access catheter that you can see in her neck. The treatment was so expensive that she had to take her two girls seen here out of school. After several months, the family ran out of money for treatment and she died. Before she passed away, she kindly allowed us to make a short YouTube video of her story, which you can watch if you like on our webpage, and I encourage you to do so. I like to start each of my talks with her story because all the rest of the slides are about numbers. Of course, aren't all our talks about numbers, but behind every number is a preventable human tragedy like this one. And really, that's what keeps us going. Our project began with a publication from the George Institute in The Lancet in 2015, which for the first time estimated the number of patients around the world receiving treatment for end-stage kidney failure and projected those numbers into the future. So we estimate that today, 16 million people around the world need dialysis. Three out of four of those 16 million people will die because they can't afford dialysis treatment. And they live in a place where for them, the cost of dialysis is not covered by any health insurance system. As I'm sure you all know perfectly well, there are two forms of dialysis. Hemodialysis or HD, where a filtering system cleans your blood for five hours, three times a week, and peritoneal dialysis, PD, where fluid is run into your belly by gravity and draws waste products out of your body by osmosis. You have to change the bag four times a day, seven days a week, and each bag change takes around half an hour. It's a lot of work to stay alive. In the intensive care unit, the bag changes are done by the nurses until the kidneys recover. PD is portable and pain-free and can be done at home. It would be my choice if I ever needed long-term dialysis. As we've seen, PD can also be used in the acute setting in intensive care, particularly for children, but it works just fine for adults as well. But there are some disadvantages of PD as it's currently practiced. PD fluid bags are expensive and they're heavy. Each one weighs 2.2 kilograms and they have to be trucked long distances to your home. They're manufactured in large centralized factories using reverse osmosis purified water. So that means six liters of water are treated to fill just one two liter bag. It's pretty wasteful if you're short of water. To give you an example, in my country, there's only one factory for the whole of Australia and New Zealand, which is located on the East Coast here in Sydney. So each PD bag used in Perth on the other side of our country has to travel 4,000 kilometers from the factory to the patient. 
This is one month's supply of PD fluid delivered to a small apartment in Hong Kong. And as you can see, it takes up the whole lounge room. It weighs 270 kilograms, takes up a lot of space. That represents a big trucking carbon footprint. To tackle the global issue of the cost of dialysis, the George Institute launched a prize competition, a prize of 100,000 US dollars for a new disruptive affordable dialysis system, which would be as safe and effective as conventional dialysis, could purify water from any source, could run off rechargeable batteries and solar power, would cost less than $1,000 to manufacture and just a few dollars a day to run. The prize was sponsored by the ISN, the George, the Asia Pacific Society of Nephrology and the Farrell Family Foundation. I chaired an international judging panel of dialysis experts. And long story short, Ellen Medical Devices was founded to bring the winning entry to the clinic. And here it is, a fluid-free, sterilized PVC bag, which holds a proprietary mix of salts and sugars. The pH is 7.2, whereas most commercial PD fluid has a pH of around 5.1 and is quite irritating to the lining of the belly. Our, our fluid contains no glucose degradation products because it's dry powder. It weighs 150 grams, so a month's supply is just one box weighing 18 kilograms. It's half the price of standard PD bags and the carbon footprint is 10 times less. It's affordable, safe, light and eco-friendly. The other part of the Ellen Medical Solution is the pure water distiller. Here you can see the current prototype in my lounge room mounted on a surgical trolley for use in our upcoming clinical trial. I was testing it at home one weekend. It's a little bit smaller than a microwave oven. The cost of goods for manufacture is under 300 US dollars. It produces pure medical grade water for injection, WIFI as we call it, which can be used to fill our bags at the point of care in the home. But is it safe, I hear you ask? Will it introduce infection? Today, I'm sharing some of the answers to that question. We measure fluid sterility in three different ways. Firstly, conductivity by passing an electrical current through the fluid. Tap water has a conductivity of around 200 microsiemens per centimetre. The British Pharmacopoeia standard for WIFI is less than five, which is shown in the green horizontal line. This graph shows 15 water samples measured in triplicate, five taken early in the 2.2 litre bag fill, then five more in the middle, then five more at the end, and they are all well below the target. The second test we use is total organic carbon, a very sensitive assay which will detect any carbon-based life forms in the distiller fluid. Here, the British Pharmacopoeia standard is less than 500 parts per billion. And again, as you can see, we're well within that range. The third test is conventional culture on agar plates. Here are nine samples of our bags filled by our distiller and sent for culture at a NADA accredited lab for culture for viruses, aerobic and anaerobic bacteria and fungi, all entirely negative and endotoxin testing is negative too. So at this stage, we're very, very confident 
in the sterility of our fluid and our PD bags. What are the next steps for LNM medical devices? I hear you mutter under your breath. Well, we're kicking off a first in human clinical study of just five patients here in Sydney, which we expect will start off in May. It's focused on usability, safety and efficacy. Of course, we need to raise some more money. So we've announced a Series A capital raise, which we'll use to establish commercial manufacturing facilities for the bags and the distillers. So if you're connected with the capital markets or you know someone who might be interested to invest, you're welcome to get in touch. Then we plan to undertake usability studies and regulatory submissions in Australia, Singapore, India, Mexico, Thailand, and Hong Kong. And then of course, we'll conquer the world. We expect our system to be available in a clinic near you sometime in 2025. Thanks for the opportunity to share our new approach to providing peritoneal dialysis at the point of care. We're convinced it will be of real value in treating acute kidney injury, whether it's caused by sepsis or any other illness. It's low cost and green credentials make it a great fit for tomorrow's world. Thanks so much for your attention. Thank you so much, Dr. Knight, for sharing that exciting technology with us. I think um, it's a unbelievable reduction in the carbon footprint and just an incredible opportunity for our patients to do this in their home. I'm curious what you you had mentioned, obviously, um, the risk of infection um, being a significant challenge um, that you're hoping won't be a problem. And, and clearly your preliminary dates uh, data shows that really nicely, but do you envision any other challenges such as um, access to water or anything else that you can imagine that you have been thinking about uh, as any other additional barriers that you're worried about? Look, uh, the main question will be usability. We're asking the patients to do more. We're asking them to uh, prepare fluid in their home uh, and our usability tests will be focused on how easy it is for them to do that. They need to make four bags every day and they'll change the bags. Um, uh, it takes about half an hour to change a bag. So it's quite an imposition, but then PD patients around the world are doing that every day already. Here in Australia, um, there are about 4,000 patients doing PD bag changes every day. We think that the advantages of making the bag in the home uh, with, our, with our bags full of salt and sugar really will outweigh the additional um, work that is required. And the fact that it's so low cost and so easy to transport and is so easy to store for long periods of time will open up PD to a whole new sector of our world where right now they just can't afford it. I think that sounds absolutely incredible. And, and related to your usability, I, I was curious what your plans are for education um, and who might be doing the, the training for these patients that are going to be using this um, as they think about um, using your device and, and using peritoneal dialysis um, as well. Well, you know, there's an old saying, don't boil the ocean. And uh, there are already around the world clinics providing dialysis, hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis. There are doctors and nurses training patients in doing PD at home. We're not going to change any of that. A surgeon will still uh, sew the tube into the belly 
a nurse will still train the patients on how to do PD. They'll have to learn how to do a, a clean, no-touch bag change. They'll have to learn how to wash their hands carefully and wear a mask just like they do now. The part of the process we're changing is how the fluid is prepared. Everything else stays the same. And the fluid is prepared instead of in a big factory 400 kilometres away, 4,000 kilometres away if you live in Australia. Uh, it's prepared in your home on the kitchen table. And that's the one thing that we're changing in the process. Everything else stays the same. Fantastic. And I assume um, the, the bags are very, they looked very um, easy to manage. I assume that it's very easy for someone, even with low literacy rates, to figure out exactly how much water they must add. And um, I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about that. Yes, look, our distiller has a touch screen and it's um, what's on the touch screen is symbols rather than text. Um, our first market we're interested in conquering is India, where currently 1.5 million people need dialysis, but only 150,000 are receiving it. So one in 10 are being treated, nine in 10 are missing out. In India alone, there are 14 official languages. So having a language on the screen is a problem. So we're going to have symbols on the screen, start, stop, we're using the same metaphor as a music player, so there'll be a play and a pause button. Uh, it takes about two and a half minutes to hang a bag, plug the bayonet into the distiller and press go. Then you walk away, the bag fills up. You come, it takes another two and a half minutes to take the bag off the distiller when it's filled. Uh, everything else is the same. Uh, we've done preliminary usability trials with patients here in Australia, which I guess are patients the same everywhere around the world. And they're reporting to us that this is very simple, very easy to use and very comfortable for them. This clinical trial we'll do in Sydney, we'll be putting the distiller in the patient's home for a week and asking them uh, to fill 20 bags over five days. And we will each day visit them and give them a usability questionnaire so we'll have a lot more information about just how easy or hard it is to use in the average home. And we'll repeat that usability study in India, in Thailand, Hong Kong, in Mexico, in rural and urban environments. And we're trying to make it very simple and easy to use, even for people who maybe can't read that well. That is wonderful. Thank you again for sharing this initiative. There's lots of really great chats thanking you for your initiative. So that is fantastic. And we're going to move along to our next speaker. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Louise Thwertz. Uh, she is a clinical researcher and member of the Emerging Infectious Infections Group at OUCRU. She's an associate professor in the Center for Tropical Medicine and Global Health at the University of Oxford and an honorary consultant at Oxford Ho University Hospitals Trust. Her research focuses on the care of the critically ill child, uh, critically ill patients in resource-restricted settings, and she has been spending much of her career uh, doing research on tetanus. And her current role is thinking about ways to improve the care of critically ill patients using new technologies um, for the diagnosis, treatment, and rehab following diseases. She's also an expert consult to the World Health Organization um, and is providing recommendations to the group of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Um, so we're very excited um, to hear um, Dr. Thwart's uh, presentation on wearable devices for sepsis care in low resource settings, getting past the noise. Thank you very much. Welcome. 
Thank you very much, Tracy, and hello, good morning, evening, uh, afternoon, everybody. So this is a frugal technology session, just to remind us all really what uh, are the main challenges in providing good sepsis care in lower resource settings. These are identified by mainly ICU physicians at a recent uh, event we had in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, Access to care may be different in lower resource settings. There tend to be better care uh, uh, in more urban centres, and yet a lot of the patients are quite remote and rural in their locations. Cost of care obviously is a factor. And importantly, I think lack of staff and limited training often of those staff is very important, as well as obviously equipment and infrastructure. So I'm going to be talking about wearables and how they might help with these problems. Uh, what do I mean by wearables really here? I'm talking really of devices um, centered around me measuring pulse oximetry and ECG. And essentially, they may be able to help really in the whole sepsis journey um, from early diagnosis through management and then even, even rehabilitation and recovery may, may be adding active uh, sensors such as gyroscopes and accelerometers into that phase. But essentially, the devices we look at can measure SpO2 heart rate, but they can also sometimes measure temperature as well, calculate or measure respiratory rate, as well as the actual waveform analysis of, 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 as well. Um, they're usually connected via Bluetooth to mobile devices or uh, through the cloud to computers. Um, and essentially, there's been a lot of talk recently about wearables, but I, I did a quick PubMed search the other day. And you can see there are articles cited back to 1945. But really, until about 10 years ago, these were all auditory wearable devices or hearing aids. And over the last 10 years, there has been a huge increase in the number of publications, but again, mainly around other devices, fitness trackers, uh, those kind of things, rather than the devices we're talking. But there was a nice publication linked to an engineering meeting in 2004, where they did specifically talk about these pulse oximeters and ECG devices, and really envisaging the kind of things we're going to talk about today, their use in ICU care and their use for very sick patients, as well as possibly becoming sensors for, for more general monitoring systems. So what they mean is, is really, and what we're talking about is replacing what I'd say is the older model of care, quite common on the left, where particularly in low resource settings, manual measurements, perhaps taken from bedside monitors are made and then transmitted to whoever's making treatment decisions and replacing those with lower cost solutions on the right hand side, where that kind of middle person and, and process may be removed. Wearables do have a big advantage for this. They're flexible. They can be used in, in quite cramped conditions um, if their ICU is like the ones we have in Vietnam and additional patients need to be accommodated no matter what, then they can accommodate that demand. Um, the, battery, uh, the battery functionality allows the fact that these um, devices don't need to rely on mains electricity. And of course, patients can potentially be ambulatory as they recover. They're obviously lower cost, and that's why we're interested in them in this section. 
However, this does come at a different cost. Um, movement means there is artifact. The cheaper devices have lower signal quality. Um, and then there are connectivity issues around Bluetooth and wirelessness. And because obviously we need to we need to look after very sick patients with these, it's important that these devices are properly um, accredited and approved before we use them for clinical care. So this is an example actually of a system functioning in Oxford. This was really rapidly implemented in COVID. It consists of wearable devices of an ECG patch and a pulse oximeter um, connected to a bedside tablet but then going through to um, a more distant monitor where staff could, could visualize patient data. This was used in an HDU setting with ambulatory patients. Um, compared to a lot of low resource settings, it was really well staffed, four or five nurses and three or four doctors for 19 rooms or 19 patients. Um, and it was, as I said, it was put in very rapidly um, about half the patients in this ward were monitored this way. And of those, nearly all of them were monitored the whole time or most of the time they were there. So this was a very successful implementation, but I would say this team has spent a very long time setting this up beforehand. They had considerable experience with the devices and had worked already with staff on user interface. Now, could this be feasible in a lower resource setting? Well, these, this is a, a published study from Rwanda where both adults and children with suspected sepsis admitted to the emergency department had wearable patch put on them. And they essentially compared the data from those patches with that taken by a, a dedicated research nurse, but also, I think really importantly, by a, just a normal standard ED department nurses. And they were really happy, essentially, with the correlation between the wearable sensor measurements. Most of the data was usable. And, and actually, when you look at the differences between the sensors, I think in terms of clinical relevance, these are very small. But I would draw your attention to the fact that they did say there were technical and practical issues in about 28% of patients. They term these as minor, but nevertheless, these are things that need to be addressed if we need reliable systems functioning. So what is the evidence? Um, unfortunately, we're at a stage where there's still limited evidence of efficacy of such systems in, in actual practice. This is a recent meta-analysis uh, of nearly 9,000 citations. Only seven studies were included in this analysis. These were all done in high-income setting. And actually, only three of these were randomized controlled trials. Um, looking at these, we're looking at wearable devices for deterioration in hospitalized patients, nearly always in surgical settings. Uh, and no differences were found in employing these systems in terms of intensive care transfers or rapid response or the other outcomes here. I'm showing a composite endpoint forest plot on the right. And uh, I think um, the things to really take from this are the trials are, the, are at the top of the study, whereas the before and after studies are lower down. And you can see really the trials show, show even less of a difference. I've highlighted in red, though, two studies which look specifically as sepsis and an and effect on sepsis outcomes. And just briefly, 
looking here at, at the first of these studies. This was done in the UK in a surgical ward. Um, patients were randomized to standard care where nurses calculated the uh, early warning score um, and, and or they were randomized to wearable patch device as shown in this picture which transmitted essentially continuous data to to the nurses and and there was an alert if these um, parameters went outside of the normal range which triggered nursing activity so in these patients there were relatively few sepsis events but what they did show in this early study was that in these events, it looked like the, the nurses responded quicker and there was a, a faster time to antibiotics in these patients, plus, plus other perhaps improvements in terms of length of stay and readmissions. Noting again, though, 24% of patients had the patch discontinued before the end of the study period, often for technical reasons. The group followed up with another study um, very similar design, slightly different in terms of how they design the endpoints. But actually here, there was a less convincing result in terms of time to antibiotics between the two groups or all the other data. But I would say they did also do a cost-effective analysis. And in terms of NHS in the UK care, they felt nevertheless the, the patch could be cost-effective. But so it's, it's perhaps not surprising that there's a limited evidence showing how these things work in practice um, at the moment, particularly in high income settings. But I think what's really exciting um, and most exciting about wearables is, is what else can be done. Because of the connectivity, it's potentially much easier to extract data from these wearables and use that in, in improving clinical management. So on the right-hand side, um, just describing some work that we've done in Vietnam, actually in patients with tetanus, where rather than looking at overall numbers of heart rate or SpO2 from um, wearable or bedside monitors, the team in collaboration with the team in Oxford have been looking at the actual shape of these waveform data and finding out that you can find out a lot more detailed and prognostic information from, from these kind of analyses. And I think potentially in low resource settings, this can be really valuable. So an example of this actually quite a while ago now published in 2016 in uh, a field hospital in Sierra Leone treating patients with Ebola. Uh, is this study. So here they used a wearable system partly to, to allow remote access and, and remote data visualization for these patients in isolation. So a patch device on the patient connected remotely to a, a remote monitoring station. Um, and firstly, they validated the data compared against the usual care that the, the patients were getting, which was a three times a day heart rate, respiratory rate and temperature measurement by staff. Um, and they were very happy with that and a reasonable correlation, again, with the data. But because they had the waveform data available through the, uh, through the patch device, they were able to calculate um, some more sophisticated measures, perhaps. So they were able to calculate heart rate variability as well as pulse transit time. And with that, they fed these into a machine learning algorithm and developed um, something called the multivariate change index. 
And essentially that looked at how these variables changed as patients improved or deteriorated and particularly how they interacted together and against each other. And, and what the figure on the right is showing is how those differed in patients whose trajectory was improving. So that's the top panel versus those um, who deteriorated the bottom panel. And I hope this kind of shows the potential of these kind of systems in the sense that these data could be acquired from quite a low cost device, but really quite sophisticated analysis can be applied, hopefully in more or less real time to indicate to medical staff what is the likely trajectory of patient and potentially be fed into clinical decision support tools. However, really to do this, you need nice quality data. Um, the, the equipment I've described so far have been relatively high cost, um, reasonable signal quality. And as I mentioned at the beginning, the cheaper the device on the whole, the poorer the signal quality you get. And this is work our team in Vietnam have been doing to try and address this, again, collaborating with colleagues based in Oxford. Um, looking at ways of improving the quality from, from cheaper, low-cost monitors. So some of this work has, again, been done in patients with tetanus, comparing low-cost pulse oximeters. So the one in the picture here costs about $60 or $70, so that's considerably cheaper than the state-of-the-art ICU monitors, which we were comparing the, the data against. Um, and we looked at ECG data and pulse oximetry data, um, having essentially cleaned it using something called bandpass filtering. And what we then did is calculate the heart rate variability parameters. Um, the reason we did that is we know they're quite useful prognostically, and also you need quite a nice clean either ECG or pulse oximetry signal to be able to calculate those accurately. And the figure on the left is showing essentially the comparison between the heart rate variability data um, between the cheaper wearables and the expensive monitors. And, and actually, hopefully you can see that the pink and the blue from the two different devices more or less overlaps. And our, that mechanism is really seeming to be helpful. An extension of that work has been now to build in some automated signal quality uh, tools. And that's all available open source if people are interested where, the heart, where ECG and PPG signals can be fed into these um, quite simply and a nice quality index can be achieved. And we've shown recently that using these devices in COVID, very good signal and these methods, very good signal quality has been achieved. So really coming to the end of the talk, I hope it's fairly clear that um, we are still quite early on in terms of using wearables in sepsis and critical care. But I think there's a lot of potential with these systems, particularly the extra things that we potentially can do with the data. And that's a benefit throughout the world, but especially in the low, low resource settings. Um, there's a big need for clinical trials and, and ways of scaling up these systems, at the same time keeping them affordable. And that links very much with the need for regulation at the moment, the regulation is lagging far behind the technology and the development, not just for the devices, but also as we start to build in these algorithms and want to use them for actual clinical decision support. 
So really, that's the end of my talk. Um, I'm very happy to take questions if there's time. And thank you for your time today. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that incredible talk. Um, there are a couple of questions in the chat. And the first question is um, related to the use of um, the technology for ICU patients as compared to the wards patients. Um, and if you see there being a role out for the, the patients that are on the wards that might be sick and might need to be recognized and be transferred. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the in high income settings, that has quite rightly been the focus of a lot of the work so far because um, there's enough equipment and staff within the ICUs themselves and, and identifying patients earlier in the ward is seen as, as really important. Um, there are some more studies. I haven't had time today to, to show them in some more recent ones, but generally showing that there is a useful role there. And that particularly if, if the data can be used in a more sophisticated way, these, these systems can outperform kind of conventional early warning scores. Fantastic. Um, and the second question is, how about integrating early warning score systems that are tailored to specific wards and patient populations within vital sign devices, which allow for direct point of care intervention? And another yep. important point to raise is the efficiency of including connected devices to the connected to the EMR and a streamlined workflow based on the hospital specific care protocols. Sort of one question together. Um, I think those two are, are really valid points. Um, I think um, a lot of that involves good connectivity. I think in lower resource settings, EMRs are certainly not. Um, uniformly employed and often paper record systems are, are the normal, um, often very limited paper record systems. So I, I'm very aware in this, this talk, we're particularly looking at um, applications which are um, useful for all environments. But certainly, I think the future definitely will be to integrate these things. Um, I think there is we're still quite early. Uh, there's a danger that everything becomes so automated, no one lays their eyes on the patient. And I think for practicing clinicians, we're all aware that sometimes there are simple things that cause devices to be reading aberrantly. And um, a very quick scan of the patient can tell us that the probe has fallen off, for example, and that the patient hasn't had a cardiac arrest. Um, and so, so there's quite a lot of work to be done around this as well as we move forward. Thank you so much. That was uh, that was a wonderful talk and super excited to see how this actually um, comes to life in, in many environments. So thank you very much for sharing that with us today. We're going to move on to our, our next speaker. Um, Dr. Rishi Kamalesvaran is a um, Assistant Professor at Emory University in the Department of Biomedical Informatics, uh, Pediatrics and Emergency Medicine. His research is on machine learning um, and analyzing trends in data to predict onset of deterioration of critically ill patients. So a really nice uh, follow-up to our last presentation. Um, and his uh, presentation is entitled Neonatal Technologies from Development to Prime Time. So thank you very much and welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, uh having the opportunity to talk about uh, this exciting uh, topic. So I'm going to jump in, <clears throat> as many of you uh, uh, are well familiar with uh, the intensive care environment and as, as well as the uh, previous talk just uh, being reflected on physiological monitoring, I wanted to zone in on it and just focus on 
the opportunities in that space from a, not only from a, a, um, a, an, an instant standpoint, but also a longitudinal standpoint. So a, a typical neonate that's admitted to the NICU uh, will be attached to a variety of monitoring devices, each of which uh, samples uh, significantly granular data at various degrees of sampling frequency. Uh, the ventilator, for instance, can collect data upwards of 500 data points every second. Uh, the um, electrocardiogram and the arterial lines uh, collectively can sample upwards of 1,500 data points a second. Uh, the uh, IV pumps, the oxygen saturation monitors, uh, the incubator, the warmer, all of these can produce significant data points every second, which are vastly um, uh, underutilized. So just in a, in a conservative sense, if we just took all of this data and, and just computed, aggregated them as a, as, a, as a vector over time, we would see that there is upwards of 43 million data points that are being recorded per patient per day. As we know in routine care, uh, much of that data is aggregated down to a set of vitals that are entered into the electronic medical record um, and uh, or onto paper charts. And that, uh, that uh, results in a, a significant amount of information loss. One of the opportunities that many uh, of uh, the, uh, the, the urban teaching centers have been uh, utilizing is the infrastructure to capture the data and, and allow for that data to be archived such that we may be able to run uh, machine learning and AI uh, uh, technologies to learn from historical events wherein um, sepsis or uh, multi-organ dysfunction or cardiac arrest has happened um, to better understand whether we can identify predictors in, in the data. One such uh, uh, method has been um, utilizing streaming data, uh, taking that streaming data and applying something called event stream processing. And this has been uh, a technology that has been around for several uh, years, over a decade now, uh, starting with the, the, the very famous uh, IBM Infosphere Streams system, which then uh, transitioned to an open source Apache Spark, Apache Storm system, uh, and so on. So fundamentally what this allows uh, from a technological standpoint is the ability to take data as it arrives versus in contemporary databases, data is often stored, uh, bucketed, and then after at fixed intervals queried to generate results. This is a, a, a different paradigm in such that data is constantly queried so that results are always being generated and some um, computational analysis is performed after the continuous uh, analytic result to generate uh, um, what we call meaningful actions or meaningful terms. So one of the case studies in which I want to uh, highlight was work that we uh, started doing early on uh, in identifying neonatal sepsis and neonatal spells. And this is, uh, this is, this is utilizing the high frequency data that was collected uh, at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto 
and trying to make use of it such that we could uh, better understand what were these markers, what were the, the types of uh, events that were occurring prior to these uh, neonatal spell uh, episodes. And uh, we had defined a, a number of uh, um, approaches, one of which was called um, relative and absolute alerts. Relative alerts were, uh, as the previous speaker had mentioned, uh, if suddenly you see uh, arrhythmia as an alert that comes up, uh, is that something that is uh, to be expected from prior what we call these entropy events? Or is this something that suddenly shows up and maybe it may actually be artifacts? So keeping track of, of absolute and, and relative events was, was important. And we were able to do that by continuously sampling that high frequency data. Apart from that, we had uh, some rule-based uh, clinical um, adjudication wherein different spells were, uh, or the, the, the broad category of spells were further categorized into specific uh, uh, events, uh, um, such as central spells, vagals, and uh, uh, different apnea events, and then general desaturation, general bradycardia, and so on. We were then able to utilize all this information in the form of an interactive dashboard, which could actually um, uh, illustrate exactly the types of spells that occurred that uh, would be able to suggest uh, uh, the specific classification of the spell uh, and uh, highlight uh, in the high frequency data all the events that occurred from uh, a historical standpoint so that clinicians could better understand what actually happened at the bedside. Furthermore, we, could, we were able to identify these salient events that were going on. Um, and, and this is a graph of, uh, of different degrees of variability. The top bar that you see, the respiratory impedance graph is actually um, the x-axis there are durations of, of breathing pauses. And you can see that the clusters close to the one to 10 represent normal breathing. And then anything that extends above that are episodes where breathing pauses occurred. Now, uh, as you can imagine, there were a lot of artifacts where uh, shallow breaths were not uh, adequately captured, uh, but uh, regardless, there were, uh, there were still clusters that we could see uh, in which uh, um, uh, breathing pauses uh, were occurring. Similarly, uh, in the second graph, we could also see that uh, in this neonate, there were uh, very significant um, uh, heart rate uh, uh, baseline breaches, which represent a percentage away from a, a rolling average uh, mean. And you can see that uh, this, this, uh, this specific individual had uh, a series of events that occurred prior to a, a certain point of interest, which, which for us was, uh, was uh, neonatal sepsis. We were also able to identify specific uh, uh, instances of events over time and, um, and uh, plot them as, uh, as uh, uh, repeating events over a number of days to see whether there were certain interventions that were, um, that were uh, possibly disturbing uh, the neonate and, and resulting in spells. There are lots of anecdotes that spells would occur around the time of um, certain nursing shifts uh, uh, or nursing events um, or rounds, and, and we could actually see that uh, 
there were um, a number of bradycardic events that were going on uh, around these these morning rounds, um, which were uh, things that we could actually now see because we could compute this uh, information, classify it, and then and then make that available for our clinicians to see. Now that was a lot. A lot of that was utilizing rule-based methods, but really the recent shift uh, in in, uh, in medicine and in neonatal medicine has been to move towards predictive algorithms that utilize data-driven approaches. So um, on one hand, we have utilized um, a lot of rule-based and a lot of domain expertise to characterize events. But on the other hand, there's been this, this notion that maybe uh, there are certain things that we just uh, have a, a, a difficult time characterizing uh, in an ontological way. And perhaps what we need to understand, uh, what we need to progress towards is a very high dimensional abstraction of events, which are difficult for humans to, to perceive, but maybe not uh, from a mathematical standpoint. So in that case, what we've been uh, seeing is a lot of machine learning algorithms that are being used to predict sepsis by uh, taking significant volumes of data and, and generating hundreds of features off of that data, and then using those features to fit them into learning algorithms uh, to make predictions as to whether sepsis would occur between, between different periods. And here in this slide, you're seeing an, an, an example of, a, of a, a random forest algorithm, a, a convolutional neural net. Both of these are, are um, uh, machine learning algorithms. Uh, being used to predict, for instance, uh, whether uh, a patient is having uh, um, is, is likely to have sepsis or not. And in this case, we utilized clinical adjudications. So these are um, uh, these are uh, standardized patients where sepsis was adjudicated, and um, uh, we could uh, see, for instance, that. Um, patients who had uh, sepsis were having uh, a number of uh, cardiac events that were occurring uh, prior to uh, when that alert fired on the far right. And we were re <coughs> really utilizing data in the early uh, segments of, of this episode to predict that, that onset. And what we were seeing was that, that machine learning algorithms were largely doing well in identifying these episodes with fairly good specificity and sensitivity. And how did we actually uh, do this? So in this case, what we see is this, this concept of a nested hierarchical temporal window, uh, which means that uh, so from, from a naive standpoint, machine learning algorithms will only take the data that, that you feed them. And so typically machine learning algorithms are not utilized in a temporal world where uh, historical information is often um, uh, important to, to, to understand. So mostly these machine learning tasks have been, can you identify a bird in, a, in an image? Can you identify uh, a tree in an image? So these are static uh, um, uh, events where you pass data and then the, the objects are to be recognized. Whereas in, in, in uh, neonatology or in medicine in general, uh, I, you cannot just take a simple snapshot of a, of a, of a patient in time and ignore uh, all the events that occurred prior to that. So in order for us to force these temporal assumptions onto non-temporal learning algorithms, we have to make uh, abstractions actually in the features that we feed them. 
So for instance, for every, every hour uh, of, uh, of time, we would generate uh, statistical features like mean, median, maximum changes in heart rate, uh, oxygen saturation, and so on over the last uh, uh, 0.5 hours, uh, so 15 minutes, 30 minutes, hour, and we would concatenate all of that information to a single vector and then pass that vector to the, the learning algorithm so that it not only has to utilize uh, information from a certain time point, but also has this, this, uh, this nested uh, approach in it. And this really allowed us to capture that historical information uh, and, and really improve our, our performances of, uh, of uh, predictions. As you can see in this graph, when we modulate how much uh, uh, time um, or how much, uh, what the necessary window is um, of information that the, the model gets, the performances are vastly different. And this is a challenge that we have to, to face with uh, in uh, the machine learning community is that information that's fed into uh, the, the models uh, will make big differences in terms of how performances are, are perceived. And so understanding what information is going into the model is very critical to assess generally the benchmarks. In other words, if I'm giving the model only 10 minutes of data versus one hour of data, there's a big difference in that, uh, in the performances and in the accuracies that we can, uh, we can get. In other uh, methods where we have utilized uh, this machine learning based approaches, we're seeing a similar set of, uh, of, of uh, uh, attributes. This time though, we've, we've changed the definition. So go moving from this notion of SIRS plus organ dysfunction, moving towards this newly introduced sepsis three concept, which actually incorporates uh, organ dysfunction in the definition itself. We see that time to onset is now significantly improved. So prior to, uh, to this, we were getting three to four hours of early, uh, um, early uh, identification, but with just a shift towards a more, uh, a more acute uh, label, we now can do even better. But the question is, you know, how do these label influence uh, machine learning algorithms and how do they really, uh, you know, what, what do we make sense of, uh, or how do we make sense of uh, of, of these uh, results when the underlying label is changing and it's, it's not an apples to apples comparison. So there's a lot of consideration that, that uh, as, uh, as uh, machine learning uh, individuals we have to, to come up with. And here in this image, you can see an example of, of that um, uh, SIRS, uh, which would be um, uh, a uh, much earlier non-specific uh, uh, variable would have picked up a patient almost um, 20, uh, 20 or between 16 to 21 hours before based on just heart rate and respiratory information. But because now we introduced the sepsis three concept, it's, it's actually uh, identifying these patients up to, a, uh, up to a day later. Moving on to um, uh, the, the next stage of how we utilize. So in, the, the previous sets of, uh, of uh, slides suggested that we utilize data that we already have. And, and now the interest really is in miniaturization and wearable technologies, as mentioned earlier, and identifying more advanced features. So we no longer want to just take heart rate or just take 
uh, uh, oxygen saturation or, or blood pressure. We're actually interested in the uh, interactions that occur among the, the different physiologic systems to generate uh, more sophisticated features like pulse arrival time, pulse transit time, slope transit time. A lot of these multimodal uh, features which characterize physiology better. So we can possibly uh, identify things like vasodilation, vasoconstriction, uh, and, and changes in cardiac uh, and uh, vasomotor function uh, by integrating data. So just not simply looking at, uh, at uh, derived uh, um, uh, instantaneous measures, but really looking at, at, at holistic uh, um, physiology itself. And that's, that's been driven by um, uh, uh, words like Michael Pinsky and Gilles Plamont and those at the University of Pittsburgh uh, by utilizing machine learning and AI to, to uh, create these abstractions, which I think would be uh, a very exciting next step for how we utilize physiologic data in, in, in machine learning. And, and things like all things what we see here uh, are, are, are examples of that. So in, in this figure, what you see is uh, just a pulse uh, oximeter estimating blood pressure based off of the ECG and PPG data. Um, you can see initially that the pulse oximeter uh, overestimates. So the red is uh, the estimated blood pressure curve and the blue is the actual real curve. Uh, you can see that there's an overestimation, especially on the diastolic component. But after introducing machine learning methods, you can see that the approximation really comes down um, and and uh, it, it's still it's still not perfect, but you know it's definitely getting to that point. Similarly, you see how uh, simple uh, um, uh, pulse oximeter information can also be utilized uh, to estimate um, uh, respiratory uh, information, how much uh, what the degree of apnea is. And you can see here that there are significant correlations from these features that are being used. Um, to um, uh, to what we see. In other uh, uh, in other segments or uh, abstractions, you see uh, multi-scale entropy, which is another source of information. Actually, differentiating different degrees of ARDS uh, amongst patients by utilizing signals and uh, and characterizing um, uh, not only the acuity of their condition of their uh, possible uh, respiratory system, but also um, how these patients can be phenotyped into different groups um, much earlier than, uh, than uh, um, uh, uh, clinical suspicion. And uh, as we move towards these in high fidelity uh, uh, data points, we now can um, uh, suggest that these, uh, these data points can actually be used in uh, in clinical medicine for uh, identifying and uh, um, uh, clinical decision-making. So the example here is where um, we are utilizing just uh, um, heart rate variability and abstraction from the ECG and PPG, we could actually separate viral uh, sepsis from all-cause bacterial sepsis. So this is, uh, this is very uh, exciting uh, data and we're uh, hoping to progress on this. And, and again, based off of utilizing these, these uh, high-dimensional 
um, data, we can actually see that there's actually unique signatures amongst these um, cohorts. So in, in, in those who have viral sepsis, uh, for instance, you start to see very different signatures of these standardized markers, whereas those with bacterial sepsis seem to have a, a very different uh, trajectory. So these are all evidence that suggests that there's there's much for us to use in this uh, in this data, and um, and we're we're just kind of getting to to that point. So uh, that's the general sum of what I wanted to to discuss, and I, I'd be happy to to take any questions that that may have. Thank you so much for that um, incredible talk. Clearly, a ton of work is going into um, to this. I just have one um, one question for you. Uh, you know, we think a lot about alarm fatigue in the ICU, and I wonder if this is an opportunity to potentially help with that and sort of sort out what alarms might be relevant versus, you know, those extraneous ones. Yeah, that that is an extremely good question, and I think that's where um, we uh, there's there's a, a great work that came out of uh, CHOP, uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Uh, where um, uh, they utilized actual video cameras to uh, not only um, see, for instance, the, the, the monitoring data, but also the patient uh, um, data. And, and I assume that by utilizing all of this information, you can actually get to better um, alert systems so that just a simple change in, uh, in um, humidity or attachment of the lead is not enough for you to generate an alert. You actually have to utilize multiple uh, sources of data before those alerts can be generated. So I think we're getting to, to that point, and this is probably a, a good step in that direction. Wonderful. Well, certainly a step towards uh, the future. <laughs> Thank you. And if anyone has any questions, um, uh, please post them in the chat. Uh, we'll move on to our next speaker, um, Dr. Mark Answer. Ansermino, who is the director of the Center for International Child Health and a professor, researcher, and clinician in the Department of Anesthesiology, Pharmacology, and Therapeutics at the University of British Columbia. He leads an re interdisciplinary research team um, who are working uh, on novel technical solutions to use data automation and sensors to improve the health outcomes of women and children around the world. And again, also looking at predictive models. So really excited how these uh, three presentations are flowing from one to, to another. So welcome. And we're excited about your talk, Dr. Ansermino. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Tracy, and warm welcome to everybody. Yes, this is a follow-on and I think a little bit more of a clinical talk on clinical implementation of how models will look in clinical practice. I'm presenting today on behalf of a whole team of people who've been working at this problem for the last 10 years, particularly my collaborators in Kenya and Uganda and the other collaborators I have at the University of British Columbia. And our focus has really been to look at sepsis in children and to focus really on quality of care and how we can use data-driven approaches to improve the quality of care. And also, I fundamentally believe that you know, data is the great equalizer. And particularly if we're looking at frugal technology, we really have the opportunity to, um, you know, make a huge impact at a much lower cost. So much greater improvement in the efficiency in what we do things. So rather than try to take the care models that we have in, you know, high resource settings, but take a total different approach to how we actually do this in low resource settings. So hopefully I'm going to give you some examples of what we've actually done in that setting. 
So if you have a look at the average um, mother and child in a low resource setting, there's many opportunities for us to improve the care that we deliver. So when you get a child at home getting sepsis, getting critically ill, we know that there's many issues that cause the outcome of this child potentially to be There's delay in traveling to the health facility or getting that child to the health facility. There's delay in receiving care at the health facility. There may be a low quality of care at the health facility. And what we've learned, particularly in our research, is that's really only half the problem because the other real problem is what happens to this child now that may have recovered from that acute episode, but he's certainly not totally well again. And we all know that, that these are still extremely vulnerable children. How do we get those children back into the community, not only in the acute term, but also in the longer term, looking at you know, developmental problems that happen in children after, after sepsis? So we have an opportunity with data-driven approaches to look at many of these, many of these, these issues. And the key concept about all of this is that can we collect information and we collect information typically at the time of admission. And this is, you know, um, uh, demographic information combined with some clinical vital signs and other, uh, other clinical information. Can we predict the particular vulnerability of this child? And the, the importance of predicting this vulnerability is that instead of providing, trying to provide the same care to everybody, can we target each individual child to their level of vulnerability or their level of risk? And by doing this, we can be much more efficient. So rather than taking the traditional public health approach where we treated everybody the same, can we target those children that are most vulnerable? And this is really the essence that we have taken in what we call our um, smart QI or smart quality um, uh, uh, improvement approach. And as we mentioned in this journey of mother and child, we have focused really in this at looking at the facility at this stage. Obviously, this, these approaches, and we'll realize these are complex health systems that we are working in. And most of what we're doing, and we begin to realize this more and more that Improving outcomes is not really about the data. It's really about changing the systems that we're managing these children in. And that's really the important thing for us to actually be able to do. And so we, I'm going to talk about two things, two programs that we've got going. The one is called Smart Triage, which is a data-driven triage approach. And the other is Smart Discharges, which is looking at the children who leave the facility that we say, that, as I said, is a major problem. So triage is something that we all know is how we prioritize care to the sickest children. And we know that in sepsis, it's critically important for us. Time to treatment is critically important. Even an hour of delay, we know can significantly increase the risk of poor outcomes. But also we know in discharges that um, these children are not sent home cured. These children are still extremely vulnerable, some more than others. And we need to have some interventions that we can do for these children, both in the short term, but also in the long term to make sure that these children survive. So for the smart triage program, this is how it really works. We have a mobile application that has a data-driven application. So we've collected data on thousands of children and instead of developing the usual early warning score, this is more a, you know, a 
machine learning approach to integrating data that assigns a priority to a child based on this demographic information and um, clinical signs. And from that, we can prioritize this patient. And what we're able then to do is really to make sure that the sickest children get seen first. But this is not this needs to be integrated with a quality improvement program within the facilities because it doesn't magically fix things if all of a sudden we label somebody as being a high priority. We've got to make sure that that facility has the resources to be able to treat that child, that has the antibiotics, that has the trained staff and these sorts of things. So this is really the approach that we have taken with this. And this program now We've got nearly 20,000 children that we've built these models around. We've implemented this now in four facilities, and we'll be doing another three facilities by the end of the year. And we've really shown you know, statistically significant improved, um, improvements in um, clinical outcomes, both in time to treatment, but also in length of stay and mortality, and um, as well as you know, very significant economic benefit. So this is definitely an intervention worth doing, simple data-driven approach, but needs to be combined with this in this environment of quality improvement. This is combined with this um, clinical dashboard. As we said, this is part of the quality improvement program. This is how we get information to the people who need it, to the clinicians, to the administration staff, to the nutritional team. So everybody is able to get additional information, be able to provide the highest quality care. Okay, so this is the Smart Discharges program, which really means that we you know, um, the child gets admitted at the time of admission, we triage the child, we assign their vulnerability risk associated with that. All children get some education, all families get some education, um, but those children at the highest risk get followed up in the community. And we have, we make sure they get connected back down to the local community health worker, as well as to the nearest community. And in a um, feasibility trial that we actually did using this approach, um, we showed that we certainly had much more, many more children being referred back to the facility because these children get sick again. Um, we saw increase in hospital admissions, but we did show a 30% reduction in post-discharge mortality, even with the simple intervention of follow-up and, uh, and, and counseling. So these are just some approaches that we've used to, to actually be able to, um, to do this. And if people out there are wondering how they can be involved in this, we have an organization called the Pediatric Sepsis Collab that is focused on engaging as many people as possible to be able to do these prediction models. Because obviously these models are gonna be um, different in different contexts. And within the Collab, we are happy to provide tools that will support people to be able to do this. We're able to help people build applications themselves or provide open source. All our, all our data and applications are provided open source. And also obviously providing mechanisms whereby we can standardize how this data is collected. But also as mentioned earlier, some of the regulatory challenges that we're gonna face as we implement some of these models into clinical practice. There, there is a, um, you can go to our um, Dataverse site if you want to have a look at what data is available there, what other resources are available. 
Um, and this is just to, to show that there's a number of collaborators that we have around the world are using similar approaches to treating children with sepsis. And thank everyone, and I apologize for my poor internet connectivity. <laughs> and please feel free to contact me if you have any other questions. I'm happy to take some. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, that was an incredible presentation and a large number of, of people that are working on this as in your, your collab group. So fantastic. I just had one question for you. You know, I think um, related to um, triage and the amount of individuals that it may take to sort of use the system, you know, even in the best, most resource environment, the triage system is quite chaotic. And I'm curious, you know, to use the system, do you, do you think um, that there are any limitations? Um, does this usually require uh, an additional healthcare member to be monitoring that dashboard and, and looking at all the patients that are coming in? Or is how, I'm just kind of curious how automated the system is and how, um, how it can really help those uh, healthcare professionals that are on the front line that are trying to do lots of tasks all at the same time. Thanks, Tracy. And you, you appreciate that in many facilities, triage is not done. So, yes, it does require healthcare, somebody in the healthcare facility. And in fact, in fact, in most of these facilities, we just take whatever, you know, it's a simple application. We really use eight predictors that enable us, to, you know, parameters that we need to collect to be able to do this prediction. So, you know, we will use student nurses or um, nutritionists, anybody we can do to actually help do the triage. Um, but you'll find in these systems, it's just amazing the amount we learned, even by just we, we have a, a, a color-coded lanyard that we actually put around the child. It actually has a Bluetooth tracking device that goes to the dashboard as well to actually be able to track the child. But even the simple act of putting that changes the system. We do other things, for example, is we make a special bench in the facility where only those children that are at the highest risk are allowed to sit. So this is almost like the red bench that you can go to, go to that you can actually be seen. So these other very practical things that we can actually see that this can happen. But this, as you said, doesn't get rid of the chaos that happens in many of these facilities. And, and that's where this whole thing of quality improvement comes in. So how do we make sure that children don't wake at the lab for two or three hours, which is a common thing. It's disappear from the facility. So all these other things are really major challenges that we need to deal with as we implement these within a quality improvement framework. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for um, that amazing talk. And we will uh, move on to our final speaker. Dr. Liz Yukas, who is a radiologist with a special interest in infectious diseases and tropical medicine. She works at the NHS in Liverpool with the African Research Collaboration on Sepsis at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Her work focuses on point of care ultrasound and is working in Africa, looking at the potential role of point of care ultrasound there. So really excited um, to hear her talk entitled The Strengths and Limitations of Adopting Technology for Sepsis Management in Low and Middle Income Countries. Lessons learned from experiences with point of care ultrasound. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, and yes, um, I'm very pleased to be able to share some of the experience we've had um, adopting existing technology. Um, and in this case, that's point of care ultrasound in the sepsis management, as you mentioned. Um, as you said, I'm a radiologist. I work with worldwide radiology and in collaboration with the um, African Research Collaboration on Sepsis. 
they uh, have just completed a large cohort study in sepsis patients and our work is a small sort of um, pilot sub-study in that. Uh, Dr. Croyles is one of the members of the team here. He's an infectious diseases um, consultant and he's done all the data analysis related to this work. So first of all, I assume most people in the audience will be aware, but just to summarize, point of care ultrasound is the use of ultrasound um, at the bedside by the clinician who is assessing the patients as part of their clinical assessment. Um, and the utility of point of care ultrasound is very dependent on the setting it's being used. So um, if you're a critical care specialist in a high income setting, then you may find it very useful. But if you then transfer that skill to uh, a clinical officer in, in a district hospital in Africa, that the utility may be very different. And similarly, the patient populations are all obviously very different. So when it comes to the use of ultrasound in sepsis, uh, the main indications to use it are for volume status assessment, cardiac function, guiding fluid therapy, and potentially looking for a source of sepsis. And um, I know there are a lot of strong proponents uh, in favor of point of care ultrasound in the management of these patients in high income settings, but I know there are also uh, some more skeptical views. And in high income settings, large trials are currently underway to see if this question can be resolved. So what we're interested in is whether there might be a role for point of care ultrasound in managing patients in Africa. And there is actually very little or actually no evidence really of high quality to support that. There's a lot of enthusiasm, but we need more data. So the pilot study that we are doing is we basically said, let's start right at the beginning and say, you know, what kind of ultrasound findings might we even see in patients who present with sepsis? Um, so the question was, in what proportion of patients could um, POCUS detect findings which might be useful for clinical management in patients who present with suspected sepsis with a very wide sort of inclusion criterion? More specifically, the question was, what is the proportion of patients who might have ultrasound findings consistent with intravascular fluid depletion? Those who have findings suggestive of intolerance to high volume intravenous fluids and findings that might identify a potential source of infection. So we've just finished the recruitment. COVID obviously threw things a little bit uh, <laughs> out of time, but it's just finished. There are three study sites, uh, Malawi, Gabon, and Uganda. And the study, uh, the research clinicians who are all either medical officers or clinical officers, uh, not specialists, not critical care specialists, performed a single point of care scan at on admission. Um, we will aim to correlate the findings with clinical diagnosis and outcomes, but that's not the primary objective of this, this pilot and also evaluate the training that was required and look at inter-observer variation between these clinicians who performed this and single expert reviewers. So all their data was collected on video clips and they have all, will all be reviewed by experts. So the protocol for this um, study is obviously geared to looking at fluid um, status. So that means there's a three-view transthoracic echo uh, assessment of the IVC, assessment of the lungs to look for interstitial pulmonary edema, pleural effusions. And then when it comes to looking at the source of sepsis, 
given the population and the high prevalence of TB, we included some views that might pick up extrapulmonary TB, pericardial effusions, abdominal lymph nodes, etc. Looking at renal obstruction as a potential cause and soft tissue infection. So it's quite an extensive protocol. So what have we learned so far? Um, all the operators, the study clinicians, were novice POCUS operators. Um, and putting it all together, they needed approximately full weeks of, four weeks of full-time training to achieve adequate study views. So that I need to highlight that doesn't necessarily mean they are clinically competent, but they were able to then you know, obtain all the views that are required for assessment. Um, expert reviews, our experience is that it takes approximately an hour for an expert to review one patient's scans and fill in the forms and assess it. So quite a labor-intensive sort of quite a large demand on expert reviews in this situation. And over the period of recruitment of patients to sustain quality assurance, to keep people supported, to maintain quality, deal with unexpected findings, again, required quite intensive support for the, for the operators. And then just briefly, when we look at some of the findings, and these, this is very preliminary, but this is only from the cohort in Malawi, um, looking at the rating of image quality. So the, the views that were obtained, what does the expert think of the quality? And you can maybe not unexpectedly see that the cardiac views, um, approximately 10% were of inadequate quality to make an assessment. Whereas towards the bottom of the table, the lung views were pretty much all of good quality. And I think since COVID, we all know that lung ultrasound is relatively easy to learn and apply. And cardiac scanning is much more difficult. And then the more interesting part is um, what are the findings? And for that, we would go by the expert reviewer's opinion. And you can see that in approximately 16% of uh, patients, there were findings to suggest there may be pulmonary edema, I, you know, characterized by three or more bilateral B lines. Um, and 6% of patients who had evidence of poor cardiac contractility both of which might make you a little bit cautious for your high, high volume fluid management. In total, that's approximately 22% of patients. Um, looking at the potential source of infection, this is a cohort of patients who were admitted to hospital. They were septic, sick enough to have to go to hospital in Malawi, where there is a high prevalence of HIV and of TB. So it's not unsurprising that there is a 35% rate of patients with findings suggesting that the underlying cause for their sepsis might be TB. So putting that all together, if we're talking about strengths and limitations of adapting this technology into that environment, it's an existing technology, so we don't have to do much to, to roll it out. It is increasingly being used for pregnancy, for um antenatal scanning in emergency medicine. It's portable, the costs are coming down. So there are a lot of benefits. In this particular cohort, 30% of the findings suggested it might be helpful to guide your fluid management. Um, and in the 35% of patients, you might actually find the etiology of sepsis. But I think we, do, we are looking at quite a lot of limitations because this is a complex protocol for septic patients. Interpre interpreting the findings in the context of other clinical uh, 
you know, parameters. Um, the utility being so dependent on context, you know, if you've learned in one place, it may not at all be applicable in another. You know, this is a very specific population. It's labor intensive and not just to teach people to, to, to assure the quality, but also for the actual operator. I was just, you know, the previous talk about triage, it's incredibly busy. <laughs> and do you really have the time to integrate this into your assessment? I'm not sure. I think we would have to look at that. I think at the end of this study, if we've got the data from the three sites, if we feel, you know, if there's a discussion, people might feel that it is worth exploring whether the benefits outweigh these limitations or need bigger, much bigger validation studies looking at patient outcome. And they are going to be expensive and require a lot of investment, not just financially, but also in manpower to make that happen. And I'm, I'm you know, it, it, I think that may be one of the limitations. This is going to be really hard to do, but it might be worthwhile. So, um, of course, this is like everything else, a team effort. Um, this is the whole team from all the different sites. Um, this was our first training program we did roughly three years ago now. And I'm personally really looking forward to the presentation, maybe at this conference, by one of the PhDs from one of these sites who will be able to present the final outcome of all the sites put together. So thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you. This was an incredible presentation and I think um, just highlights the potential for this technology um, that's cheap and can be um, deployed all over. And as you mentioned, I was curious about the, the same thing about the education and teaching. And I'm, I'm curious if you um, have any thoughts about how best to integrate that into teaching. You know, the things I was wondering about is, could it be part of the routine training for um, clinical officers and physicians that's uh, rather than a four-week intensive training spaced over time to maybe, um, you know, deploy a train-the-trainers train train model to get um, this in, embedded into culture? And I'm sure you guys have thought a lot about that. And I'm curious where you see the best opportunities for for teaching and training to be? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good suggestion. I think, um, first of all, we still also in the other applications, I think we need the data that this is really actually worth doing because I, but say we, those studies do show it makes an, it has an impact on patient outcome. I agree. I think integrating it into their training, but those training programs are already very overloaded. <laughs> um, so, if we can show that it's valuable across different indications, not just for sepsis, but also for the acute trauma patient that walks in through the, the door, you know, the, the child with an acute abdomen. I mean, there are other indications where it would be useful to have this skill and take it across the board. One of the things I've been thinking about is whether you train certain people to a higher level, um, like a have a clinic, have a sort of an imaging or an ultrasound add-on module for clinical officers so that one person in or two people in a clinic are more expert rather than trying to spread it across the entire profession. Um, I, there have been some studies and some people who have done this where you have a sort of one-stop shop that you have one or two people in your clinic who can actually do this for multiple different indications. I think that might be more feasible. 
shop. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's an incredibly thoughtful approach to sort of thinking about first, if the, is this reasonable? And second, um, how do you go about teaching that? And there's a lot of um, comments in the chat that are thanking you and that are really excited thank about you. seeing the results of the final study. So so thank you very much for sharing your work with us. And I think with that, we're going to close the session here. And I just wanted to, um, to encourage everybody in the audience to visit our website, uh, sign the World Sepsis Declaration, follow us on social media, um, and a big thanks to our supporters and sponsors, as you can see here on the screen. And thank you all to our presenters for uh, taking the time out of your busy days to share um, your incredible innovations with all of us. So thank you, everyone, and have a nice rest of your day. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who helped putting this together. Session 5 will be out next Tuesday. See you then.